series called The Gospel of Jesus. We believe the gospel presents a compelling case 
for what Jesus' early followers believed. Jesus fulfilled God's promise to redeem His creation and make all things new. We believe the gospel of Jesus makes the most sense in explaining the meaning and purpose of life and our part in it. What does it mean to call Jesus God's Son and Messiah? Well, good morning. We continue our series on the gospel of Jesus, and we're asking the question today, what does it mean to call Jesus God's Son and Messiah? What does it mean to call Jesus God's Son and Messiah? And before we uh, get into that, to answer that, let me give you this perspective. Uh, you need to be reading the Bible. Now, that might sound like a command, but you need to be reading the Bible. Uh, let me rephrase that to say, this, uh, say it this way. As you read the Bible, it will come alive to you and your faith will grow. If you don't read the Bible, you're going to be wandering around not quite sure where you are and how you're going to get to where you want to go. Uh, if you've done some backpacking, you've used a map probably. If you've done some sailing, you, you've used a chart to find your way uh, across an ocean or, or a body of water. Uh, but when you look at a map, you notice that it's flat, and you can't really see anything. There's no dimensionality on a flat map. So if you're doing a backpack trip, and you're coming um, up from the eastern side of the Sierra, and you're going to do a backpack trip, and you have three days to five days, let's say, and you're thinking, how, how much should I commit to? Well, if you're looking at a flat map without any sense of context of the contours, uh, you might be in for a big surprise when you get there. Likewise with the Bible. We read the Bible so that we can understand the contours of the land. Uh, otherwise, we're going to treat the whole thing as flat. Uh, these various chapters don't really add up to anything, don't mean anything. They're just interesting information. I don't know what to do with it. But once we start to read the Bible and get a sense of the dimensionality of it, uh, the topography of the Bible, it's like understanding the topography of, of a mountain environment. When you're driving up to Yosemite from the western side, you go through Fresno, uh, you, you go through little towns, and next thing you know, you've, you, you hit the park, uh, you're about 10 miles out of Oakhurst, you hit the park entrance, and now you're driving for another hour on your way to Yosemite, and you're thinking, it's just trees. It looks like somebody uh, has just planted the same tree a million times. And it's interesting, but it's kind of the same until you go through a tunnel. And when you come through that tunnel, the Wawona Tunnel, all of a sudden there's Yosemite. Whoa. And now you get why everybody was so excited about going there or taking you there, how excited you'll be to get to explore it. See, that's what happens when we read the Bible. We start to understand why the journey matters and where we're going in the midst of that journey. So let's answer the question from that perspective. Uh, what does it mean to call Jesus God's Son and Messiah by looking at the Word of God? That's what we're going to do this morning. But let me say this, uh, again by way of context. We live in a time of profound conflict and chaos and confusion. Uh, when did it start? When did it start? If you, we all agree that, wow, yes, we live in a time of chaos, conflict, and confusion. When did it start? And as we start talking about when it started, I think we'll be surprised how far back it goes. Here's why. And when we ask, <laughs> ask the question, when did our problems begin? How far back do we need to go? How about Genesis chapter 3? Genesis chapter 1 and 2 uh, talk about God's beautiful creation and our part in it. 
But in Genesis chapter 3, uh, here comes trouble. And we find that because of human rebellion, uh, the world we know and experience is not the world described in Genesis 1 and 2. It's a world of chaos and conflict and confusion. And since then, everybody is a confused philosopher and theologian trying to figure out what life's all about. We yearn for something more, but we don't know what it is or how to get there. And so we come up with all kinds of ideas. All kinds of good people throughout history said, it's over there, it's this way, uh, or I think this is the meaning. And so the first point of the morning is this. Everybody believes something, but how do we know what to believe? How do we know what to believe? So, for example, in the question we're asking this morning, what does it mean to call call Jesus God's Son and Messiah? How do we know? How do we know what to believe? Uh, everybody believes something, but how do we know what to believe? You don't want to spend a lot of time only to discover you've been believing the wrong thing. It's like without understanding how to read that map, you've been marching, hiking in the wrong direction. You've walked past Yosemite, let's say, and it's just more trees. And you're disappointed and befuddled until finally somebody says, hey, where are you going? I'm, we're going to Yosemite. Well, you walk past it. Come with me, I'll take you there. Uh, Everybody believes something, but how do we know what to believe? W.C. Fields said it this way, a man's got to believe in something, I believe I'll have another drink. I got a headache from thinking about things, I'm going to take a break and just get away from this conundrum. Even even when we say, I don't believe anything, uh, we've just made a philosophic or theological statement. So you can't get away from it. There's no neutral place. Everybody has to commit to something and articulate something by way of a philosophy, uh, ideology, uh, a theology about what gives life meaning and purpose. We all have a hunger and a thirst, a yearning for meaning and purpose. I would say uh, for God. Because even an atheist or an agnostic would say, I don't want to call it God, but I guess I would call it spiritual. There's something in me that yearns for something more. We would call it God. They might just say it's spiritual. In any case, all of us share this quality and conundrum, which brings us to Jesus. He's a category of one. He's utterly unique and compelling. Now, now I realize uh, most dating sites are filled with people who describe themselves this way. I am so unique. I am so compelling. There's nobody like me. I'll make your life better if you only get to know me. But this is the message about Jesus. If we get to know him personally, everything changes. In fact, everything is better, even when uh, circumstances don't necessarily get better. Perhaps the circumstances get worse, but everything is better when we know Jesus. He is a category of one, unique and compelling. He's different in the best possible way. He's God. He represents himself as God's Son and Messiah. People came to identify him as such. He's God come into the world to save it. And we have four accounts uh, in the New Testament. We call them Gospels, Salvation Histories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that document for us uh, what it means that Jesus is God come into the world to save it. He is is God's Son and He is Messiah. Uh, Matthew starts out his Gospel this way. The genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Apparently Matthew is writing to perhaps a Jewish audience, to help them understand the nature of this bold and brash uh, proclamation that Jesus is God's Son and the expected Messiah. 
Uh, Mark starts his gospel this way, the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Again, uh, he's starting out with a bold statement regarding this good news, this gospel about Jesus Messiah, Son of God. Some translations will have it Jesus Christ, Son of God. Then Luke, uh, physician Luke, comes at it very analytically uh, as, as an historian would as a person sizing up a patient and saying, what is the diagnosis? What are the, the, what's the, what are the data points that I can make a diagnosis? Luke says it this way, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. With this in mind, since I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning... I too decided to write an orderly account for you so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, Luke is, as a Greek, come to know Jesus, influenced by uh, Jewish followers of Jesus, uh, specifically Paul. Uh, And he's writing to a man named Theophilus. He may as well be writing to all of us by that description of the opening uh, of his gospel. And finally, uh, in John's gospel, John starts out saying this, in the beginning was the Word. It sounds like the opening of, of Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. He goes on to say, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The Word, uh, God, becomes flesh, enters into His own creation, and makes His dwelling with us. He literally pitched His tent among us. We have seen His glory and the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made Him known. No one has ever seen God. Now, this is a shocking and provocative statement. No one has ever seen God. Talking about somebody from the perspective of living in this world, no one has ever seen God. Krishna has never seen God. Buddha has never seen God. Muhammad has never seen God. You and I have never seen God. Any great philosopher, religious leader, pundit, well-intended, trying to figure it out, has never seen God. Though we all yearn for Him, we have all, perhaps have ideas about Him, signs, hints that we might not know something about Him, insights about human nature and our capacity to, f- to flee, to hide from God, as well as to seek after God. But John has his bold statement, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made Him known. So this is uh, the documentation from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about this incredible event that has disrupted and redirected human history. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, So how did Jesus make God known? Well, in what He said and how He said it. In his miracles, in his character, in his concerns, 
uh, Jesus' ministry caused people to identify him as Messiah. Uh, Peter gives this confession of faith. Who are you? You're the Messiah. Uh, a man named Nathaniel said, you are the Messiah, the King of Israel. A woman named Martha, uh, whose sister was Mary, whose brother was Lazarus, said, you are the Christ. Let that sink in. They came to that conclusion, hearing what he said, seeing what he did, seeing how he was. In fact, at one point, some of the leaders in the temple in Jerusalem were so scandalized by what Jesus was saying by way of representing him as, as a Messiah, as a son of God, as uh, the answer to Israel's hopes. that They sent some uh, officials, some guards, some soldiers representing the temple to arrest Jesus. And they went and they found Jesus in Jerusalem. They heard him teaching. They watched what he did, how he interacted with people. And they went back uh, to the chief priests and the Pharisees, empty-handed. And the chief priests and Pharisees said, well, where is he? <laughs> and they said, no one has ever spoken like this man. Their way of saying, how do you arrest somebody like him? It was powerful. We've seen nothing, heard nothing like that. And of course, they were berated for that. But this was the power of Jesus. Powerful, compelling, unique, one of a kind. Drawing people in to say, there's something going on here. It's as if God is paying attention to us. It reminds me of this story about a, a, a kid who was in the hospital with a very serious illness, and he was in the hospital for several weeks, and they realized, this kid's going to be here for several more weeks at least. So they sent in a teacher to teach him. And as the teacher came into his room, the teacher said, hey, I've been sent by your doctors to teach you. At which point the kid uh, just starts crying, and the teacher says, well, how are you feeling? What, what are you feeling? I'm just so relieved. They would never send a teacher to a kid who was dying. And so the people who met Jesus were saying, I don't quite know who he is. Is he a prophet? Is he a pretender? But there's something so compelling and attractive about him. It's as if God is paying special attention to us in these times of chaos and confusion and conflict. You'd never send somebody like this if you didn't care, if there wasn't hope. And then we see that God himself bore witness to Jesus on two occasions that we have documented. Jesus was in constant fellowship with the Father. But here's two documented instances of God uh, confirming Jesus uh, in a public setting. Uh, the first was at his baptism. John the Baptist is baptizing Jesus at the Jordan River uh, near Jericho. All kinds of people around. And as Jesus comes out of the water, a dove alights on him. And then a voice booms out of heaven saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. He's got my seal of approval. The second setting uh, was later in Jesus' ministry. Now Peter, James, and John, James and John being brothers, uh, John being one of the gospel writers. So the three of them are with Jesus on this mountain. The mountain isn't described. We don't know which mountain it is. We have several ideas about which mountain it could be. But here they are on this high mountain, and they encounter Moses and Elijah. And, of course, they're all blown away. Uh, and Jesus is radiant with light. And so Peter suggests that he builds shelters for them all. And right now we're in the middle of Sukkot. Sukkot is a joyous uh, Jewish holiday uh, following from Rosh Hashanah, the, the, the new year. 
which is a time of thoughtful, uh, prayerful repentance. Then Yom Kippur, which is what it is, a day of atonement. And, and then following those two very serious, more austere uh, celebrations, it's uh, Sukkot. And the idea is you build these portable shelters, uh, signifying and remembering what it was like for the people to be in their wilderness journey as, as Israel coming out of slavery on the way to the promised land. And so uh, it's a celebration time. It's, also, it's a harvest festival. It's happening right now here in October. And so Peter's first thought, I guess, is, hey, I, the most celebrative thing I can think to do to honor them, uh, to, to pay proper tribute and respect to the moment, is to create these shelters. And a voice booms out of heaven at that point, saying, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. <laughs> it's great advice. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Don't miss a thing that he has to tell you. Don't miss a thing that he wants to show you. Don't miss anything that he wants to confirm in you and call out of you. Because I'm on the move in him. Can you imagine being there? Uh, this was so transformational for Peter. Years later, uh, he refers to it in one of his letters, now writing to believers all over the place, Jew and Gentile. Uh, and he says this. This is out of 2 Peter 1, verses 16 to 18. He said, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. Those three loaded phrases there, Lord, kurios, Lord. Lord uh, is a Greek, uh, kurios is a Greek word. It was the word that was applied in the, in the Hebrew translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. It was, Hebrew, it was Hebrew translated into Greek. And so where you got the holy name of God, in Hebrew, they would say Adonai, and when they got the holy name of God in this Greek translation, you wouldn't want to disrespect the holy name of God by saying it, so you say something in its place, and what they said was kurios. That's the word that, that um, uh, is used here. Kurios, Jesus, Messiah, Christ. Christ is a Greek word substitute for Messiah. So Paul, uh, Peter is using the whole uh, series of titles for who he believes Jesus to be. Our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. No wonder then Peter, uh, also in his ministry, could say this, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to humankind by which we must be saved. This is Acts 4.12. No other name given to us by which we can be saved. This was Peter's testimony about Jesus. So how do we know? Well, we know by looking at Jesus that he's credible, he's convincing. So the second idea is this. The gospel of Jesus is good news about a new covenant and a new creation, a new relationship with God and people, a new experience of life for people who respond to this new covenant. And so the Apostle Paul, formerly Rabbi uh, Shaul, Saul, writing to some people in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21, says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, in Christ, the new creation has come. Jesus is the first signs of the new creation. We can't go back to the garden in Genesis 3 
But we get to go forward to a new creation of which Jesus is the first example of what it's going to be like, His resurrection from the dead. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself. That, reconcil- that word reconcile is about the, the covenant, the new relationship. Who has reconciled us to Himself through Christ, through Messiah, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, covenanting with Him and covenanting with others on His behalf. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in, in Christ, in Messiah, not counting people's sins against them. And He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Messiah's ambassadors, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. And so we implore you on Messiah's behalf, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. A pretty conclusive, all-encompassing statement about who Jesus is as God's Son, Messiah. In fact, it's what we celebrate today in Holy Communion. It's the mission of this church, being reconciled to Christ through Him with one another, and in His name, reconciling others, inviting them to be part of this new covenant and this new creation. That's the second point. The third point is this. What does it mean then to call Jesus God's Son and Messiah? It means practically, functionally, receiving Him as your Lord and Savior, your King and Lord. The gospel, the good news, uh, was a declaration proclaimed whenever Caesar's armies returned victorious. People would cry out in the streets, Euangelion, Euangelion. We, we get from that evangel, evangelism, evangelical. Uh, the old English word is gospel, good news. If you've been to Rome and you've seen the Arch of Titus, this big magnificent arch built by the emperor Vespasian for his son Titus, who came back from Jerusalem victorious having sacked uh, uh, the city, taken all the inhabitants and either killed them or sold them off into slavery, and he brings back a retinue of slaves and goods. He brings back the ringleader, of the insurrection, a man named Simon, and parades him through the streets of Rome. And as they're doing that, you can, you can imagine watching, uh, looking at the, the, the Arch of Titus that depicts this visually, sculpturally, the people crying out, Euangelion, Euangelion. And to the soldiers, it represented victory. Uh, to the slaves, and to Simon in particular, who was executed shortly thereafter at the end of the parade, it represented death. And so in this case, the cry is, Euangelion, the Lord is victorious. Which Lord? Jesus. Our King is victorious. Which King? Jesus. So Paul has taken this language of victory and applied it now to Jesus, who is the true Lord and the true King, both of Israel and all creation. Wow. So it means receiving Him as your Lord and Savior, your King, your Lord. Not in some private sort of a way, but in a very deeply personal, intimate way that connects you to a community. A community of people being reconciled. And they don't stop being who they are ethnically. They don't stop being who they are socioeconomically. Uh, These Jews didn't stop feeling like Jews. They simply became followers of Jesus, the Messiah. 
it gets muddled when, when Jew and Gentile start to relate. Now, what are we? We're Christ followers. I come at it from being Jewish. You come at it from being a Gentile, non-Jewish. But in Christ, we are one. A reconciled community of reconcilers in Jesus' name. Now, that's not how the church often looks. The church itself often looks confused, chaotic, and conflicted. But this is what's going to happen in this, as this new covenant, a new creation, uh, achieves its ultimate purpose when Christ returns again. Uh, we'll see the efficacy of this. In the meantime, we're part of a new creation and a new covenant. And so calling Jesus the Son of God and Messiah is recognizing that God is with us in Jesus. His opponent said, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you. In fact, he told them in so many ways. Better yet, he demonstrated it for them. He didn't just state the point, he made the point. He said, I've told you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe. I've told you, and you've seen my behavior, and yet you do not believe. I and the Father are one. This is John chapter 10, uh, verses 22 to 33. And so, what were these works that he did? Well, he raised the dead. He cast out demons. He commanded nature. He rose from the grave. He forgave sins. He healed the sick. He fulfilled prophecy. He ascended into heaven following his crucifixion and his resurrection from the dead. He sends His Holy Spirit. He raises up men and women to be leaders among His people. He invites all nations to participate fully in the new creation and the new covenant. And yet some wanted to kill Him for that, accusing Him of blasphemy. John uh, tells us again uh, in chapter 20, verses 22 to 33, Again, his opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Well, of course, Jesus couldn't deny who he was. He had already demonstrated who he was, who he is, he couldn't deny it, and nor should we. We should embrace it. We should respond to it wholeheartedly. We should take a deep dive into it. All of a sudden, the map by which we navigate this world comes into bold relief, and we can see things ever more clearly than before. Jesus was fully man and fully God, Son of God, Messiah, Savior, Lord. His claims, His character, His ministry, crucifixion and resurrection declare His identity. Demonstrate His identity. And now they shape our identity as His beloved sons and daughters by faith. So it's not just receiving Him and going on with life as if nothing happened. It's receiving Him, entering into this new covenant, participating in this new creation, being born again in Christ, and then growing in it, experiencing it, expressing it in, in a number of wonderful and creative ways. So listen to Him, worship Him, honor Him, live in His love, and walk in His grace. And Holy Communion is one of the ways that we remember who we are, and we realign with Him. On the night that He was betrayed, 
at the end of that meal, Jesus, having blessed the bread, broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, he broke the bread, but he gave his body. Remember, he's the perfect sacrificial lamb. And so not a bone was broken, though he hung on that cross and was tortured, uh, treated terribly, and, and stabbed in the side and blood poured forth. Uh, he, he shed his blood, but his body was not broken. His body was given. Though we say we break the bread, but Jesus gave his body. In the same manner, following that meal, he took the cup and having blessed it, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you do this in remembrance of me. And so we do. It's not just a sign and a symbol of what he's done. It's the substance of what he is and what he's doing. In some wonderful, mysterious way, he's among his people in our worship. He's with us as we encounter him in those times of solitude alone with his word. He is present in these elements in a mysterious and wonderful way. They're transformed, even as we and our ordinary selves are transformed by his living presence. So may that be uh, your, your experience of Jesus as you receive Holy Communion there at home, uh, with family, with friends, perhaps on your own. Uh, come worship with us on the lawn, Sundays at 9 o'clock, if you want to be part of it in person. Bring your mask and expect to be blessed by being with the people of God in worship. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, giving his peace both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.